Some months ago when I found out that Steve was going to go on vacation this particular time frame, uh, there were a lot of things that I didn't know, uh, knowing and taking this Sunday to uh, bring the message to you. And it's amazing how God works in those ways because He's preparing your heart for something that you may be unaware of, a circumstance or a situation that you're not prepared for, and a surprise of various nature that might happen in your life. So as I was looking at this particular Scripture, I started thinking, and I'll just give us a brief background of how I arrived, is that when I got this Scripture in my mind, what it spoke to me was that there's one time in our lives, those of us who are called a believer, there's a time in our life that God asks us that question, who do you say that I am? And I thought about that, and I thought, well, it's not just one time in our life, but we should be asking that question every moment of every day. And I, I didn't know how it was going to come into my life and, and prepare, but since then certain things have happened where it's actually encouraged me in that way to every moment of every day say and ask, or as Christ said, who do you say that I am? And my answer has to be, I know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're my Savior in the circumstance that I find myself in. So that's how I came to this place this morning. And there will be things I'll be sharing a little bit later on in the message that you'll, you'll kind of get an understanding of where I'm going. But to get started, I just want us all to just take our little outlines and read along with me the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. It says, And when they came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But Jesus looked at them and said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In 1955, a game show was created that was on the radio, but when television became its, in its infant stages, they thought that this would be a good thing to put on TV as it was on radio. And the name of that game show was the $64,000 question. Some of us would remember that. Some of us never heard of that. But it debuted in 1955 and was on the air for approximately four years. For those of you who don't know what the uh, game was for, it was <clears throat> there were two contestants and they were put in soundproof booths. They were asked questions, the same question, and one person was given the opportunity to answer that question, and if they did, they continued on. If they missed that question, the other opponent was free to steal that, and if they answered the question, they would move on. And hopefully, if you answered enough questions, you would get to the $64,000. And at that time in 1955 was a large sum of money. In 1956, with the advent of television, there was another game show that originated, and it was called To Tell the Truth. I don't know how many of you remember that game, but I remember it. And that game was made up of four celebrities on a panel where three people would come, and they would say, my name is Ken Saragusa, and I'm a farm worker. The next person would say, my name is Ken Saragusa, and I'm a farm worker. And the third person would say, I'm Ken Saragusa, and I'm a farm worker. Well, the object of the game was that those celebrities had to ask certain questions of each of those people to try to fine-tune it to the real farm worker. The caveat was the other two could lie about what they did to try to throw that off. And that was perfectly acceptable. But in the end... 
I remember the host would say, will the real Ken Saragusa please stand up? And boom, all of a sudden, the real person would stand up and the people would go, oh man, I knew it was that person, but I didn't pick him. Or, uh, I, I blew it. I, I should have asked that question. But in any case, in those two instances, there's a question and an answer. One question, one answer. And the way they pose the questions, there's only one answer. In 1964, Merv Griffin threw a curveball into the game show. He gave us the, the answers. We had to come up with the questions in a game called Jeopardy. It's been on for 50 years. I didn't know that since 1964. Isn't that amazing? And I remember the original host, Art Fleming, and the little cards that they used to pull up and push down. Now it's all computerized. But this threw a little bit of different twist in there where all of a sudden you got the answer... They would pick a category in the a dollar amount, and they would have to give the right question. But again, you had one answer and one question, or one question and one answer. If you got it wrong, <clears throat> sorry, next. We know that one, right? Well, today, in the most recent years, many of you are familiar with who wants to be a millionaire. I don't think there's anybody here in this room who wouldn't want to be a millionaire. Only a million dollars doesn't quite go as far as it used to, as we're learning. But the same premise was that they were given four answers of multiple choice. They were asked a question and they had to pick. And the answers they kept getting correctly moved them on to the next level, next level, next level. And the questions got harder. But again, one question, one answer. In 1 Timothy 6, 7 It says, For we brought nothing into this world, and we will take nothing out of it. All that will matter when this life is over is what you did concerning Jesus. Knowing who Jesus is is more important than any other knowledge in this world. When asked, But who do you say that I am? He is asking the most important question you will ever be asked in your life. There's no money involved. There's no material rewards. But there is an eternal reward. Coming to the wrong conclusion and giving the wrong answer will cost you far more than losing a game or money. Missing the truth about who Jesus is will cost you the most precious and valuable possession you have. It will cost you your soul. In Mark 8.36, it says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words is this, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father and his holy angels. There is only one answer to this question. Well, I kind of want to set the stage, and if we look back a few chapters to get an overview of where we're going, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Matthew chapter 14. Now, we know leading up to this point, there's been a lot of controversy, there's been a lot of accusations. There hasn't been a a very favorable response to what Jesus' message has been. So in chapter 14, verses 18 through 20 and following, we're going to see these supernatural miracles that Jesus performed leading up to this point. And I need to do this so that you set the foundation of where we're going to go. Chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, we have the feeding of the 5,000. In verses 25 through 32, we have walking on the water. In verses 34 through 36, we have the healing touch. In chapter 15, 21 through 28, casting out demons. In 29 to 31 of the same chapter, more healings are taking place. And later on in 32 through 38, a feeding of the 4,000. 
In the four Gospels, there are recorded some 35 miracles of Jesus. The miracles are varied in nature. They show us that Jesus had power over the creation, calming the storm and walking on water. He had power over the creatures and materials, multiplying fish and bread. He had power over sickness, healing all types of diseases and afflictions, deafness, blindness, lameness, leprosy. He had power over principalities, casting out demons and a demon-possessed boy and girl. He even had power over death. Jarius' daughter, a widow's son, and of course Lazarus, his friend. And finally, he had power over sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. But in the beginning of chapter 16, verses 1-4, through we see this. Read along with me. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and he departed. There had been enough evidence to make a strong case that this man truly was not just a man, but the true Son of God. And yet there were those who continued to disbelieve what they had seen, what they had heard, and what they understood. For the most part, they were too concerned about who they were and not who Christ was. They were blinded by what they would lose instead of what they would gain. And they were focused on what was temporary for the eternal. Ignorant to their own sense of pride and sin, they continued to plot and find a way to destroy their own salvation. They were losing control of something they had no control over. In our text this morning, we will see two questions asked and two answers given. Here in Matthew 16, this is a critical turning point in Jesus' ministry. By this time, He had been preaching for many months. Almost two and a half years, His disciples had been with Him. He was well known to the nation of Israel, and His fame had spread far and wide. The common people embraced Him, for they had seen His miracles and they had heard His teaching. And the word spread from village to village. People asking, Have you heard about this man, Jesus? All along the dusty roads of Galilee, men discussed Him and wondered who He really was. Most importantly, the religious leaders heard about Jesus and they didn't like what they were hearing. He was a threat to their vested interests. Earlier, there had been a bitter bitter confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. They had accused Him of doing miracles in the power of the devil. In essence, they were saying, you've come straight from hell. But when we come to Matthew 16, it's clear that Jesus has been rejected by His own people. His fate was being sealed. The shadow of the cross loomed overhead. And even though the common people heard Him clearly, they didn't really know who He was. They liked Him, but they would not worship Him. To them, He was a great teacher, a great miracle worker, a different type of magician, but nothing more. So Jesus, in the midst of the growing opposition and surrounded by crowds of people who liked Him but didn't understand Him in the rising turmoil that would eventually lead Him to the cross, did an unusual and incredible thing. He took His disciples away, as He most often did. He went north out of Israel into Gentile territory to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And what happened there would change the course of their lives and the course of history. Jesus knows that before long He will hang on a cross. It's inevitable because the nation had rejected Him. But before He can do that, He must know where His men stand. He must bring them out in the open. Were they with Him? 
Do they really know who he is? If you want to think to it, think of it in school terms, Matthew 16 is kind of the disciples' final exam. He has never before put them on the spot. He has never before directly asked them this question. But he does here in Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In Mark 8, we have the same testimony here, but Mark starts it this way, on the way. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 18, Luke starts it, while praying with his disciples. The first point is, This knowledge and understanding is different from the world. Wouldn't you agree? In the first part, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, asking His disciples, who do people say that He is? He knew the answer. But I think it's interesting to note, and this is what really caught my attention, what is special about Caesarea Philippi? I learned more about that little village than I knew in my whole life. But it seems an appropriate setting for this very important question. Caesarea Philippi lies about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was outside the domain of Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee, and within the era of Philip, the Tetrarch. The population was mainly non-Jewish, and there Jesus would have peace to teach his twelve. So now we have the first indication of why he's going to a different place. In the turmoil confronting Jesus at this time was one apparent demanding problem. His time was growing short. His days were numbered. The problem was, would there be anyone who understood him before that time? Was there anyone who recognized him for who he was? Were there any who when he was gone would carry on his work in the labor for his kingdom. Obviously, this is a crucial problem. For it involved the very survival of the Christian faith. If there were none who had grasped the truth, or even a glimpse of it, then all his work would have been in vain. If there were some who realized the truth, his work would carry on. So Jesus was determined to put all to the test and ask his followers, who they believed him to be. It was against this backdrop in such a pagan city with all its monuments to their manufactured dead gods that Jesus chose to ask the most important question he had ever asked his disciples. Let's look at the village of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was scattered with temples of the ancient Syrian Baal worship. One writer stated that there are no fewer than 14 such temples in the central parts of the city. Here was an area where the breath of the ancient religion was in the very atmosphere. Here was a place beneath the shadow of the ancient gods. Also in Caesarea Philippi there rose a great hill in which was a deep cavern. And that cavern was said to be the birthplace of the great god Pan, the god of nature. So much was Caesarea Philippi identified with that god that its original name was Paneus. And to this day, the place is known as Banias. Legend says that the gods of Greece gathered around looking down on this Caesarea Philippi. This cave was also said to be the place where the source of the Jordan River sprang from. Josephus, the historian, writes, This is a very fine cave in a mountain under which there is great cavity in the earth, and the cavern is abrupt and extremely deep and full of still water. 
Over it hangs a vast mountain, and under the cavern arises the springs of the river Jordan. Before there was something more. In Caesarea Philippi, there was a great temple of white marble built for the godhead of Caesar. It had been built by Herod the Great. And again, in the writings of Josephus, he writes, Herod adorned the place, which was already a very remarkable place, still further by erecting this temple and dedicating it to Caesar. In another place, it's described that, and when Caesar had further bestowed on Herod another country, he built there also a temple of white marble by the fountains of Jordan. This temple was so amazing that in the sunlight you could see it glisten from the distance. That's how incredible this temple was. No one could look towards the city of Philippi without noticing the glistening marble and thinking of the might and the divinity of Rome. It'd be like today looking in the desert of darkness at Las Vegas. All you see is this light emanating. Or maybe if you went to New York on Times Square or Broadway and saw the billboards and the signage. Incredible. Or maybe the Manhattan skyline on a bright sunny day with the sun glistening off the windows of all the tall buildings. All modern day Caesarea Philippi's. This is the backdrop where a homeless, penniless Galilean carpenter who had extraordinary wisdom made extraordinary claims and manifested extraordinary miracles along with 12 very ordinary men around him would ask the most important question he's ever asked. And right at this moment, the religious hierarchy were plotting and planning how to destroy this dangerous heretic. He stands in an area littered with temples of the Syrian gods, in a place where the ancient Greek gods looked down, where the white marble of splendor for the home of Caesar was worshipped, which dominated the, the landscape and appealed to human senses. And there of all places, this lowly Galilean stands and asks these men who have been with him almost three years who they believe him to be. And he's expecting an answer. It's as if Jesus deliberately set himself against the background of the world's religions and all their history, all their tradition, and all their worldly splendor and demanded to be compared and wanted a verdict given by his question asked. You know, we look upon that and we think, well, that was way back then in ancient times, but let me give you kind of an update. In many ways, today is no different. There are many Gospels in the world that are being preached. And I just came up with a few of my terms. I'm going to define them because I may not get them right in the terms that they're given, but this is what it meant to me. We have the gospel of legalism, meaning if you follow the rules and regulations, you'll be accepted. We have the gospel of humanism, priorityizing yourself. We have the gospel of nationalism, just because you're born in a Christian country, you're considered a Christian person. We have the gospel of capitalism, which is what is your net worth or how successful are you? We have the gospel of activism, outward expressions of goodwill and good deeds. We have the gospel of moral relativism. Hey, if it feels good, it must be okay. We have the gospel of intellectualism, the depth of knowledge and credentials. We have the gospel of creationism, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And as Danny said last week, we have the gospel of paganism, hedonism, and narcissism. And by the way, there's many other religious isms that we could list as well. But the question still remains, who 
do men say that I am? And more succinctly, who do you say that I am? Many so-called Christian religions today have manipulated the truth to fit their needs and sidetrack the reality of who Christ really is. So it's here in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is determining and demanding a verdict from His followers. He needs to know before He sets out for Jerusalem, before the cross, if anyone has grasped what He has taught, what He has done. However, He didn't ask the question directly. He led up to it. He began began by asking the people, or asking them, what are people saying who I am? And he quotes this little part on the bottom. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man? This term, the Son of Man, appears some 80 times in various forms, whether it's given by others or by Christ Himself. Matthew 24 says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great joy. John 3.13 No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. Hebrews 2.6 But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the Son of Man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. And there's many more. But this first question, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, are? am? The first answer given is, some replied, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus, knowing the answer already before He asked the question, He wanted His disciples to acknowledge what the people were saying and what they were hearing. So, they gave him the four most popular answers of the day. John the Baptist. That was Herod's answer. We know the story of that. Herod Antipas was not the only man who felt that John the Baptist was so great a figure that he might well be that he had come back from the dead. Others say Elijah. That was very popular because the Jews expected Elijah to return. In doing so, they were saying two things about Jesus. They were saying that he was a great, or one of the greatest of all the prophets. For Elijah had always been looked on as the summit or the prince of the prophetic line. They were also saying that Jesus was the forerunner of the Messiah. As Malachi had it, the promise of God was, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord that will come. That's Malachi 4, 5. To this day, the Jews continue to expect the return of Elijah by leaving a chair vacant in the celebration of Passover. Others said, Jeremiah, who was the greatest of the later prophets. In the historical book of Maccabees, it states that Jesus had a curious place, or Jeremiah had a curious place in the expectations of of the people of Israel, it was believed that before the people went into exile, Jesus or Jeremiah had taken the ark and the altar of incense out of the temple and hidden them away in a lonely cave in Mount Nebo. And that before the coming of the Messiah, he would return and produce them, and the glory of God would come to the people again. Fourthly, one of the prophets. A respectful answer, but still incorrect. People who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist did not know much about him because they didn't know that Jesus and John had ministered basically at the same time. Yet John, Elijah, and Jeremiah, along with the other prophets, were national reformers who stood up to the corrupt rulers of their day. Some thought Jesus was a herald of national repentance like John the Baptist. Some thought Jesus was a famous worker of miracles like Elijah. Some thought Jesus was someone who spoke the words of God like Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Maybe seeing Jesus in these roles, people hoped for a political Messiah who would overthrow the corruption and the oppression that Israel was under. 
The general tendency in all these answers was to underestimate who Jesus really was. To give, <clears throat> to give him a measure of respect and honor, but to fall very short of honoring him for who he really is. To elevate his humanity rather than worshiping his divinity. When we read a passage like this, we tend to downplay those answers because we know the answer, right? And we think, how foolish, how could they not know this? But those answers were meant to be a flattering type to Jesus. It would be as if someone came in and said, who do you think I am? And people said, well, I think you're George Washington, or I think you're Abraham Lincoln. If they really meant it, it would be a great compliment, wouldn't it? But even if they were wrong, you have to give them credit. At least they elevated Jesus to that stature. One commentator said that when the common people gave these answers, they were like a moth hovering around the light. They were fascinated by what they could not understand. There's two points here I want to make. First, it's evident throughout the Gospels that the common people respected and cared for Jesus even though they did not fully understand Him. And secondly, it's quite possible even with a very sincere heart to misunderstand who Jesus is. That is, it is possible to misunderstand with the best of intentions. That's quite typical of America today. There are many people who like the Lord Jesus but would not worship Him. They are unwilling to identify Him as Christ. However, they are willing to worship movie stars, sports teams, sports figures, professors of great intellect. They are willing to worship causes, agendas. They are willing to worship just about anything and everything, including aliens that don't exist, instead of who Jesus is. With all the evidence that we have, yet they will believe in something that is unbelievable and yet put their trust in it. Many of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis, probably one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century, who taught for many years at Oxford University and later at Cambridge in England. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis spoke to the issue of people who liked Jesus and respected Him, but would not worship Him. This is what he said. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. This is one thing we must not say. A man who has, was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make a choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can even kill him. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open. He did not intend to. Quote, to, all, to be almost right about Jesus is to be totally wrong. Why? Because we're not saved by good opinions or good intentions. And we're certainly not saved because of our own moral character. To come close is to miss the mark completely. So when the disciples compared Jesus to those four prominent men who in their own right were great prophets of the time, when he makes that comparison, he's saying, just not enough. Secondly, we have this knowledge is received in a very special way. Verse 17, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's interesting to note that each of the three Gospels have its own version of this saying. Mark is the briefest, and Mark 8 says, You are the Christ. Luke is the clearest when he says, You are the Christ of God. When Jesus had heard the verdicts of the crowd, he asked the all important question 
Who do you say that I am? At that question, there may have been a moment of silence, but only a brief moment. While in the minds of the disciples, thoughts were running through their mind, and they were almost afraid to express what they were sensing. But thank goodness for Peter. Peter made the greatest confession. And Jesus knew that his work and the work of his ministry would continue by Peter's answer. Jesus knew that there were those who had recognized him as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. And this word Messiah and the word Christ are synonymous. One is in Hebrew and one is in Greek, both meaning the same thing. When Peter had answered that question, he was confessing a truth that would change his life, change the lives of the disciples, change history. See, essentially, Peter's confession was that within all human categories, even the highest, they were all inadequate to describe Jesus. The passage teaches that our confession of Christ must be a personal one. Jesus' question is, you, what do you think of me? In John 18, when Pilate asked him if he was king of the Jews, his answer was, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you, who I am? This is why the Lord, having asked the first question, now asks the second one. Who do you say that I am? And in the Greek construction of this word, the word you has significance. In fact, the word you really goes at the first part of the sentence. It would be read this way, but you who have followed me and have known me from the beginning, who do you say that I am? It is the greatest question in all the universe. And it's the one which every human being must eventually answer. In Peter's answer, it just wasn't from Peter's convictions, but Peter was answering on behalf of all the disciples, as he readily did most of his time. Whenever there is a question, Peter would always be first in answering it. Whether it was wrong or right, Peter was the forerunner. And when Peter answers here, he is speaking as a representative of all the disciples. His answer is very, very specific, to the point, there's no hesitation, and with deep conviction of identifying what his answer and who he was speaking to. When he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, I want to go back to the Greek formation of this. That the word the is repeated four times. This is how it would read. You are the Christ, the Son, the living one, the true God. Peter was saying, I know who you are. You are the Messiah sent to save us. You are the Son of God come down from heaven. It is short and simple, but everything necessary for salvation. When he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, it's the identification of the Redeemer. When he says, the Son, it's the proclamation of the Savior. When he says the living one, it's the acclamation of the, ter- of the eternal. And when he says the true God, it's the exaltation of the divine. Peter was the first person in human history to ever say it out loud. And he said it when few were with Jesus and many were against him. For without his confession, there would be no Christian church. In the sense, there's a direct line between Caesarea Philippi and Grace Bible Church. For without personal confessions to that same question, we would not be Grace Bible Church, right? 
you would not be sitting here listening to this message if that first answer had not been given. The truth about Jesus Christ must be personally understood, personally grasped, personally possessed. And as I said, close is not enough. So first, we have the knowledge is different from the world. Secondly, we have the knowledge is received in a special way. And finally, this knowledge is given by divine revelation. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. The expressed encouragement, blessed are you, Jesus takes notice and encourages the weakest of our faith. What does it mean to be blessed? In Ephesians 1, it says, All you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's the blessing. There are two things to notice here that when Peter says you are the Christ, he says, we say you are the Christ. He's not saying that. He's not saying people say you are the Christ. Or even we got together and we took a vote and we think you're the Christ. In his response, it's a declarative statement. You are identified the Christ. And goes on as Jesus says, there is no way humanly possible you could possibly get that unless you were given divine revelation. It's interesting that when Jesus answers, he said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He uses his human name before his conversion, if you remember. Because later on in those verses, in that same chapter, he says, you, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. He changes it. And in the original language, we see the difference of the change. That's, that's another subject for another time, talking about Peter and the rock and all that. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Peter, mere man has not given you this. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't find this out going to seminary. You didn't get this because you have a Ph.D., You got it because God from heaven revealed it to you. And Jesus is making a point to use his surname Simon to connect the flesh and blood to show that those two things cannot reveal the part that Jesus wants us to understand. Peter, it wasn't your reasoning, it wasn't your intellect, it wasn't your merit, it wasn't your calculation, your analysis, your intuition. It wasn't even your religious tradition. There's nothing the human realm could possibly give to you that would reveal this to you. Paul says, no man calls Jesus Lord, but by the Spirit of God revealing Him. In Matthew's marvelous insight into this chapter in chapter 11, He records these words of our Lord. Matthew 11.27 All things are delivered unto me by my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will be revealed. This is an incredible truth. The truth about Jesus Christ can only be revealed to those to whom the Father has chosen. That's the truth about Jesus' divine revelation. If a man doesn't see this, we are not to despise him or argue with him. It'd be like looking at a man who's blind and cursing the blindness. No, what we rather should do is pray that God would open his eyes. And in our case, the eyes of our hearts. In John 12, It talks about this. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sends me draws him. Jesus said also in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then we have the testimony of the disciples and of Christ Himself in the Gospel of John. John 1.45 says, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And who in the prophets also wrote, this Jesus of Nazareth. Further on it says, Rabbi, 
You are the Son of God. John 2.11 He thus revealed His glory and the disciples put their faith in Him. And also, because of that in John 5, for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill Him. Not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Jesus had every right to claim His divinity because He was. John 8, 24, If you don't believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Colossians 1, 19, For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in Him. And 2 Peter 1, 1, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where do you stand this morning? What will you say? You may not have to give an answer out loud and confess like Peter did. But somewhere, whether it's now or later, as the verse says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Who is he? Was he just a good man? Was he just a great teacher? Was he just a superior magician? What does the world around you say? What do the people in your situation around you close say? Thirty years ago, Shelley and I went to a marriage weekend and being raised in a church that looked and frowned upon going to another church was a mortal sin and therefore I had some reservations about going. But I felt how, how intimidating can this be? It's about marriage. Every, all of us can use a little help in our marriage, right? And so we went willingly. And when we went, the expectations I had were very different than what I experienced. I thought Christians were going to be stuffy, suit and ties, very stiff. These people were actually having fun. And I, it was hard for me to, to, to conceptualize those two ideas in my mind. But I had to accept it because what I was seeing was real. So we went through and the weekend we had to answer questions and we found out a lot about each other that we didn't know. And we had been married five years, right? And we thought we knew each other really well, but we didn't, which was good because we grew and learned. But on that Sunday the pastor was giving a message, the message of the gospel. (laughs) And when he gave the message, he asked us to confess in a certain way, not with our mouth, but in our position. He said, those of you who are hearing God call you some way, somehow, you're sensing that you need to make a change in your life. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you need forgiveness. You know you need to repent. And when he said, I would ask if that's the case, that you would stand up. And at the same time... Unbeknownst to each one of us, we stood up and we looked at each other. What? Uh oh! What did we do? Now, what are we in for? Unbeknownst to us, there had been people praying for months for our salvation. For months, my encouragement to you is: don't stop. Don't stop. That's what we said at that time. What did Jesus say? I go back to the book of John and the seven I am's. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. 
The question is, what do you say to what Jesus asked? Not just for the first time, but as I learn going through these difficulties every day, every moment of every day, to make it through, that God would encourage you as He has me. When Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Your wife has to go in for surgery. We found cancer. And we have to do something about it. Jesus is the same yesterday and today. And I say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It ministers to all of us. Whatever we're going through right now in this point, whoever is in this room and heard these words, Lord, may you encourage him, not through my words, but through your word, because that's unchangeable. That has power. In your name, there is power. I pray, Lord, that if someone here has not answered that question of who you are in their life, Lord, by your divine intervention, would you speak to them right now? Would you show them their need for a Savior? Because sooner or later, they're going to have to answer that question. God, I pray that it's in this lifetime because they won't have a chance in the next. So Lord, thank you so much for laying this on my heart, for giving me those words, and for blessing me, Lord. I ask that you bless those who have been here this morning as well. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.